to be a better model. So um, the conversation is based on a verse in today's Torah portion, where it's by Yera. Oops, I'm not the host. Let me make myself the host. I'm host. Takes a second. Takes a second. Hey, Uncle Michael. That's an inside joke. Yesterday we had a bar mitzvah. And that's slow now. One of the uncles was given the English prayer. His name was Michael DeVito, as a matter of fact. So I went up and I said, All right, Uncle Michael will lead us. So our own Michael got up and he was ready to lead us. <laughs> That's it. Your Uncle Michael, you, you labeled yourself. All right. Okay. <laughs> so I'm having trouble getting on, on my computer. So I'll just use my we phone. We see you. We see you. Okay. I'm asking everyone to mute themselves unless you're uh, weighing in so that we could. So that it's nice and quiet. Okay. So the verse is in today's Torah portion. Vayera, this is my bar mitzvah parsha, by the way, so I'm pretty familiar with it. And um, the Torah says about Abraham. Let's see if I know which section. I think it's here. Uh, it says in um, 33, and he planted an Aishel in Beersheba, and he called the name of God. And this is uh, one of the explicit verses that Abraham kept himself busy promoting monotheism. He's the father of monotheism. He's not the first monotheist, obviously. And clearly, Noah was a monotheist too. But Abram publicly went and taught it, and the world wasn't thinking that way. Gods were plentiful. There were a lot of them. Everybody had a God that was there to help them when they needed them. For, you know, God for this, a God for that, and a God for the other. And Abraham went and created the name of God, the God of the world. How did he do it, by the way? It says he planted an Aishel. And now Aishel is normally translated as a tree or a certain type of tree. But you notice Chabad Arok translates it as Aishel. Because if it just means a tree, what's the connection between the first half of the verse and the second? Why is planting a tree related to calling out the name of God? He planted a tree. So it's explained that Aishel is really an acronym for a hotel. And the three letters of Aishel, Aleph, Shin, Lamed, Achila, Shtia, Leviya. <clears throat> eating, drinking, and escorting, keeping somebody, you know, walking them off, or some say Lamed is Lina to sleep over. And he planted this Aishel, and in this way, he was able to feed people, and as you know from the Sikha, in fact, it's probably what in Rashi, that um, what would he do? He would feed them. They're in the middle of the desert. People are traveling in the middle of a desert. This is, you know, before the days where there's a truck stop and you can buy anything you need. And he would feed them, like Abraham loved to feed them, with hospitality over the top wine and meat and everything else. And then he would say, all right, I want you to thank the creator who gave us everything. And they said, we're not thanking him. We don't believe in this God. So what would Abraham do? He would say, well, uh, by the way, you have to pay the bill. And he would produce a bill for what it's worth in the middle of the desert to get meat and to get wine, to get this kind of fancy bread. And the people said, you know what? Let us thank God. Yeah, yeah. At second thought, uh, give us the venture. And they thank God. And this is described in the Medrash and in the Talmud. But this is how he made God known. And God thanks him. And he says, uh, in another verse in the portion, that you made my name comfortable and familiar to people. Says the Rebbe. Um, this is a very strange thing to coerce somebody to say that they thank God. How does that make them closer to God? 
How is that helpful? He coerced them. He forced them. Not maybe with physical. He forced them with a bill. Same difference. And they said, okay, we thank God. That's like a, force of, a form of coercion. How is this something that the Torah is celebrating and the Medrash is talking about it in detail? Um, how are they getting close to God? This is an external thing. They're just saying it. This is a very obvious question, and it's tackled and discussed by many a commentary. Um, uh, some say just the fact that he made it known. So it became a conversation. At some point in life, somebody will wonder about a God. They'll wonder, like, who's really one, you know, running the show? As Abraham himself came to God through looking for who's running the world and who's making everything turn, the cycles and the seasons. And therefore, maybe that person will say, you know, maybe it was that God that he talked about. And this is the kind of answers that commentaries give. And with all due respect, we're not, uh, we're not uh, knocking the commentaries. Similar such things. Um, one of the commentaries says something which uh, is hard to even to fathom, that Abraham was doing his job. He didn't care if they really got it. As long as he made them say it, aha, he did his job. That's obviously has to have a deeper meaning. So the Rebbe illuminates it from a deeper perspective, from a Hasidic perspective. And the Rebbe basically gives an answer, which is the whole sikha. There's a whole sikha, and the Rebbe gives a background to his answer. I wanted to point out parenthetically, this is considered a great moment for Abraham because his nature was kindness. He was the essence of kindness. The Medrash tells us that the angel of kindness on high said to God, as long as Abraham is alive, I, I'm out of a job. Because Abraham represents kindness. He's the angel of kindness. What is an angel? An angel means, in essence, a soul without a body, a concept. If angel is, Abraham was so much kindness, that was his thing. And yet, when need be for the sake of fulfilling a purpose, he was able to be tough. It was against his nature. It was totally against his nature. And it's considered a great moment because it's indicating that his kindness is purposeful. His kindness is for the sake of Hashem. It's not just a, a natural thing or in the language of the Kabbalists. It's called human kindness. There's, there's animalistic kindness too. People, you can be kind as a weakness. This is what I am. I can't be tough. Sometimes we watch somebody uh, self-destruct and we help them. We give them money so they can continue self-destruct because we don't know how to say no. That is also referred to as kindness, but it's, the Kabbalists call it uh, instinctive kindness, almost like an animalistic kindness. An animal that's naturally kind can't change its stripes and vice versa. Most of the time, not going to change their stripes. This is who they are. The idea of human beings is that we really have kindness and we have discipline. We have all the different attributes and we, we um, kick them in into gear for a purpose. The human condition is that the mind controls the heart. This is a time to be kind. This, lots of time to be, talk about tough love for our children or whatever. There's a time to balance. And therefore, one of Abraham's biggest tests was when he had to be tough. He had to send away Yishmael. Could you imagine what this meant for Abraham? This is his son. We loved his son. He loved everybody, let alone his own son. And yet God said, no, no, this is the right thing to do. Listen to Sarah. And he did it. It's a huge test and certainly the binding of Isaac. So you notice a thread in a lot of his tests that he had to go against his grain, which is a fundamental thing. It's not brought in the Sikha. It's not really the theme, but it's, it's a fundamental conversation of Abraham's kindness that his kindness was by choice. Even though it was his nature, it's a beautiful nature when it is employed purposefully. 
That's how Torah looks at any human nature. If you are, uh, you know, if you're naturally inclined to kindness, or somebody else is naturally inclined to being disciplined or tough. It's also a good thing if it's employed in the right way. You know, when you're walking down a dark alley, you want that tough guy with you because now's the time to be tough. Judaism doesn't see kindness as always good and toughness as always bad at all. Both of them are names of God, Hashem and Elohim, kindness and discipline. So this is just a background that this is an important part of Abraham's journey. And out of the 10 tests, three or four were precisely this, that he had to show not only kindness, but also the opposite, A, to the guests, B, to the binding of Isaac, C, to his son, Yishmael, etc. But back to the question, how is it valuable that I coerced them to Thank God. So the Rebbe's answer is quite simple. That really every human being deep down, and there's a whole discussion every Jew, but really every human being knows that there's a God, could connect to this truth. And sometimes there's a tough husk that blocks it over, call it the ego, what have you. And therefore, sometimes a person has to be shocked into opening himself up to a deeper thing. And therefore, Abraham's, uh, you know, he was very tough. He was like mean. However, it was for their sake to open them up and say, whoa, I got this bill. Let me rethink this. But the conversation is that really, the belief is that really deep down, they know it. And it's coming to the fore. And that's how the Rebbe really answers this question throughout the entire Sicha. This is not about just getting them to pay lip service. Because that's meaningless. It's about bringing out knowledge of God. However, it's recognizing that there's an innate human belief that there's a God, uh, or at least an openness to truth. And it's often blocked. And you sometimes have to just get it out of the way. You know, we've all had teachers who encouraged us, who told us how wonderful we are, who told us, we've all probably had teachers who gave us a slap? I know that's illegal today. Or a metaphorical slap. Who said, just stop it. You know, yeah, yeah, stop it. Or parents. There's a moment when a parent says to a child, you know, my kids go to school out of state. I don't know, you know. And, uh, and every once in a while, they start fetching. And everything is wrong with, with the yeshiva, whatever it is. And you try to deal with it. But there's a time when you say, stop it. We've seen it with our kids where we literally scream at them and say, stop it. You're, you're not five years old anymore. And the kid comes back the next day and says, thank you for waking me up. We have this. We have this with our kids. It doesn't matter which. All my kids go out of town, my boys, my girls. One of my kids went out of town. And that particular child, this is for high school, had a hard time in eighth grade. Everything was bad. Everything was bad. The teacher could do nothing right. The weather's never good. And it was a hard year. It was just a hard year. And then the kid went off to yeshiva. For high school, it's a new beginning. You know, my kids go to Chicago. It's a new beginning. It's, it's at a good school. And we're hearing the same conversation two, three days in, same language. The teacher, he looked at me, could have looked at me. And we first entertained it the way we did before. And then we looked at each other and we said, this is, this is, a, this is a pattern. And we said to the young man, let's call him Moshe. I can't have a kid, Moshe, because my middle name is Moshe. He said, Moshe, stop. Do you want to have... And we, we told him, you know, wake up, you're big. And suddenly it changed. It literally changed in a second. And uh, a week later, he called us and he's flying high and he's doing great. And we said, what happened that you were able to shift? And he said, when you screamed at me, 
I thought about it. I said, do I want to have a miserable year like I had last year? I can do it, but I don't want to. So there is a place for that in Judaism. I know this is not modern. Today, everything is, uh, you know, uh, baby to kids. Uh, maybe it's working out. I'm not sure that it is. There's a place in real parenting that says you tell the kid you're wrong and don't do this. And even the place of like screaming at the person and even an adult is a time for what we call it hitting bottom. Let's, and the Rebbe now, so the Rebbe, that's the Rebbe's answer. Avram shook them, woke them up into compliance, if you will, to get them to let go of the husk. If you read the Sikh in detail, there's two levels. If you're talking about a Yid, there's an inherent faith in God, taking away the blockage reveals it. If you're talking about a non-Jew, there's not necessarily an inherent faith in God. However, there's certainly a capacity for it. And at least you're removing the husk that says, no way. At least you're opening them up to, to, to the discovery, to the conversation. Now, for the Rebbe to say such a thing, he's got to have sources. What's the source? Where do we find this in Torah? So the Rebbe gives a list of sources. Um, one is in uh, paragraph two, of, chapter two of the Sikha, that we find by the spies. That they came back and they rattled against, tattled against the land. It's a terrible land. And they're going to kill us. And we suddenly the Jews, one second, lost all their faith. After all the miracles, they lost their faith. And they're, they're not going to the land. It was a very bad moment. As we know, that was like the, that would cause the whole generation to wander for years. And Hashem, and, and, and nobody believes. It was terrible. So Hashem said to Moshe, go tell them, you're right. You're going to die out. And Hashem doesn't like you when he's angry at you. Suddenly, the next verse, the people came back the next morning and said, we're really sorry. We want to go. And many people went against Moses' better judgment, and those people were, were, were killed, some of them. What changed? What changed? This is a biblical source for the Rebbe's approach that sometimes tough love works because Moses screamed at them. This is explained in detail in Tanya, that sometimes you have to scream at your own Yetzirah when he keeps nudging you and telling you to do destructive things, self-destructive things, and he comes back for more. It's like an addiction, telling us to do something that we, we that feels like it's feeling good, and really it's it's our enemy. It causes us the deepest pain. You tell your own reason with it, you scream at it. And that's what the example that he gives in, in chapter 2. Another example is the Talmud, the Mishnah says that every day there's a heavenly voice that cries out and says, woe is it to the people that they embarrass the Torah, meaning that they neglected the Torah. What's the purpose of this heavenly voice? Now, we don't hear it, but apparently our subconscious hears it. Why is it so negative? It's negative. Why shouldn't the heavenly voice come out and say, how great is the Torah? And the answer is, for those who are ready to appreciate Torah, that's not a problem. Like people waking up at 8 o'clock or 8.30 in the morning to study Torah. That's not a problem. The issue is when people lost interest in Torah, there's something blocking their interest. And the heavenly voice comes and shakes them into openness and says, oh, yeah, yeah, you embarrassed the Torah. You're a shanda. Suddenly, it, somehow, again, an example of a negative being a positive. That's example two. Example three quotes the time that I mentioned earlier. This is in chapter chapter 4 of the Sikha, that the person should say this to his own Yetzirah, where you're disgusting. Fourth example is in chapter 5 of the Sikha. He brings from the Talmud that there's a story of Rabbi Eliezer, the son of Rabbi Shimon. This is a very great tzaddik. Rabbi Eliezer is the son of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai. They spent 13 years in a cave together. They ate nothing but carob from a carob tree. They studied Torah 13 years. This was a very holy man. And uh, he saw somebody and he said, wow, look how ugly. 
<laughs> it's a story in the Talmud. The Talmud doesn't hide anything. It doesn't, it doesn't make it pretty. So the, the person looked at Rabbi Eliezer and he said, go to the craftsman who formed me. Tell him what you think. And Rabbi Eliezer turned around and bowed to him and apologized to him. And he said, I, I agree. As long as don't do this again. And apparently heaven told Rabbi Eliezer, you are forgiven for insulting a person if you don't make it a habit. If you notice the Rebbe points out, this is in, in the footnote. If, if you don't make it a habit, what do you mean if you don't make it a habit? This is not something you should do at all. So the Rebbe points out that we don't read Rabbi Eliezer to be such a, uh, a coarse person. He was a good guy. He was a holy person. Clearly in, in Judaism, a holy person goes hand in hand with respect and with love. It's basic mitzvahs in the Torah to treat people with respect. But rather because he saw a person who was so coarse physically, which represented in that case, not always the case, that there was a spiritual coarseness. The person was lacking sensitivity to, to Hashem and to life and to meaning. And therefore by saying you're ugly, it was disgusting. But it was the only thing that would wake the guy up from his complacency. That's the Rebbe's interpretation of that story because otherwise the story is like totally strange. And the, and it worked, says the Rebbe. How do we see it worked? The guy said, go to the craftsman who formed me, which means he suddenly became aware of God. Apparently he wasn't a person that's likely to become aware of God. And that's how the Rebbe interprets that God's heaven's message to him was don't make this a habit, meaning it's something that may have a place in certain times and places when it's really warranted, but it's certainly not something to habituate yourself in doing. So that's example four. Example five, there's reasons why he gives all the examples. But I think for the sake of our conversation, we'll keep it one thread. The difference is that the Rebbe explains that some of them are actually revealing your deeper soul's connection, and some of them are just removing the husk and allowing you to think and to see something beyond your box. But either way, it's the same difference. This is the story of the Rebbe Rashab, the Shalom Bear, the fifth Rebbe, that somebody came to him for Yechidis, which was a personal meeting with the Rebbe and a chassid, and it was a discussion and the guy cried that he had a certain pressing need and he came to the Rebbe for a blessing for a miracle whatever he needed and the Rebbe looked at him and he closed his eyes and he prayed and he said there's no hope leave and the guy walked out sobbing so the Rebbe's brother came in he knocked on the door and he walked in the Rebbe's brother was older than the Rebbe and but he knew that the younger brother his kid brother is 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 a tzaddik is on a different level but nevertheless, it's his younger brother. And the Rebbe made a point to say it was early on in his uh, Rebbe hood. And he said, how do you do this? A guy comes to you. He was uh, appealing for that yid. Comes with a heavy heart and he's crying. And you just send him out. At least make him feel good. You just send him out and he's crying. He's sobbing. So he said, Rebbe said, okay, send him in. And he gave him a bracha and the blessing actually came to fruition. And the Rebbe explains that the reason was because the person wasn't open to Hashem because he was arrogant or depressed or whatever it is that blocks the flow of blessings, and by the Rebbe telling him there's no hope, he crushed him. Sometimes you got to crush the olive to get the oil. Sometimes you got to crush the grape to get the wine. And we all have challenges in life that Hashem sends us sometimes to bring our deeper juices. We don't ask for it, but it's reality. So the Rebbe, by telling him there's no hope, suddenly the guy walked out and he was crushed. The Rebbe, so wise and so holy and so kind, is telling me there's no hope. There's really no hope. So he started to cry, and in this way, he opened himself up 
to receive the blessing. The other example is um, the final example, which is very well known, that is a concept in Jewish law that if someone doesn't want to keep Torah in a certain thing, they're supposed to coerce him to do it. The principle is that there's certain mitzvahs you cannot do by coercion. The Jewish courts had a power, right? If somebody is doing something, they don't want to pay their debt, they were able to coerce them, much like probably the legal system today. However, there were certain things that the Torah says you have to do it by will. So one of the examples is a divorce. You can't force a person to give a divorce. The language in the Torah is he has to do it willingly. However, sometimes he's supposed to do it. There's no marriage. If there's no marriage, they're not really living together. So you're just holding on to her, the big Aguna problem, which we're all familiar with today. And that's it. I'm, bl I'm blaming it on Torah. Meanwhile, I'm, she's going to suffer because I decided that I don't want to. So the court forces the person. Again, it's not something you can do today. You might know it was in the news a few years ago. There was a court in New Jersey, a rabbinic court, who did this. And some of them went to prison. It's a very big deal because the Jewish courts don't have legal power today. I don't know what they thought and how they were going to get away. One of the rabbis in that court, a friend of mine, who I also calls at times, for advice. I give them credit for the courage, but obviously it was a stupid thing to do. But in times when Jewish law reigned supreme, when there was a Jewish court system in, in the temple days and the Talmudic days, they would do this. But how could you coerce the person to give a get? The Torah says he's supposed to give the get willingly. So the Talmud says, you're forced him until he says, I want to do it. You have to want to do it. That's the rule in Jewish law. You force him until he says, yeah, I want to do it. Another example is you have to bring a sacrifice. You made a commitment for a sacrifice. The language in the Torah is lyric, so no, you have to do it by will. But he's not doing it, but he made a commitment. So again, the same idea. They force him until he says, I want to. So the Talmud says, what kind of joke? Rambam talks about it in his law book as well. What kind of joke? You're forcing someone until he wants to do it. Like the Italian mafia who, who tells you to sign the contract and then they know how to explain it. And then you do it because you want to. What happens? So Rambam says this. Rambam, the great philosopher. He says it in the laws of divorce. As a matter of fact, chapter two. It's very famous because the Rebbe would often talk about it to bring out that every Jew really wants to do the mitzvah. And the fact that he says, I don't want to give the divorce as an example. I doesn't want to bring the sacrifice. Is because his Yetzirah is stopping him, but his real will is to follow. That's the nature of a yid. And therefore, when you coerce him, all you're doing is removing the husk and his real will comes out. And when he says, I want to, he means it. I'm not suggesting we try this at home, but sometimes our own kids, we know the kid's good and the kid is going into the wrong direction, not because they really want to, but because their demons, the Yetzirah got the better of them. And there's a time and place to sort of force them and you're not forcing them against their will, you're guiding them to their will. So this becomes the flow of the Sikha. So again, so the simple question is, how did Abraham do this and what's the value? And the answer is, ultimately, the answer is he believes in people. And he knows that people really deep down are good and deep down are open to Hashem and to truth. And sometimes they need a tough love. And in Abraham's case, the tough love was he gave him a big bill. And the examples we gave, we gave, what, six or seven examples. One is the spies. One is screaming at Eyei Sahara. One is the Rebbe Rashab telling the guy there's no hope. One is the heavenly voice every day that cries out and says, uh, it's a shanda that you mistreat Torah. One is the story of Rabbi Eliezer who said to the guy that he's ugly. Uh, one is the uh, forcing the guy to give a get. 
and claiming that now that's what he really wants, that the language of Rambam. Hofin Oto, we force him, until he says, I want to. <laughs> and the Torah, which is the Torah of truth, concludes that when he says, I want to, he really wants to. But you forced it. Says Rambam. It's a beautiful Rambam. I'll bring it up for a second. Just I wanted you to see it straight in the Rambam's language. And this is a big source for this Sicha. This is a big source for this Sicha. Uh, and I have a few minutes. I can come a few minutes late to Chakras. It wouldn't be the first time. Mishnah Torah, where are you? I want you to see this because Rambam, we all look at Rambam as a great philosopher. It's going to be the first time for me, Rabbi. So come, I'm done. Okay. This is the Rambam Laws of Divorce, Gerushin, chapter two. Take a look at this. I think it's chapter two. Maybe not. Take a look at this, this 20. Uh, Halacha 20. When a man whom the law requires to compel to divorce his wife does not desire to divorce her, the court should have him beaten until he consents, at which time they should have a get written. The get is acceptable and applies at all times and places. Similarly, if Gentiles beat him, telling him, uh, <laughs> do what the Jews are telling you, ba 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 ba. Okay, read the next paragraph. Why is this get not void? For he is being compelled, either by Jews or Gentiles, divorce against his will, and a get must be given voluntarily. Says Rambam, listen to this, because the concept of being compelled against one's will applies only when speaking about a person who is compelled and forced to do something that the Torah does not obligate him to do. E.g. a person beaten until he consented to a sale to give a present. If, however, a person's evil inclination presses him to negate the observance of a mitzvah or committed transgression, and he was beaten until he performed the action and obligated to perform, or he disassociate himself from the forbidden action, he is not considered to have been forced against his will in the country. It is he himself who is forcing his own conduct to become debased. With regard to this person who outwardly refuses to divorce his wife, this is the end of the reading. Um, the truth is that what? He wants to be part of the Jewish people. He wants to perform the mitzvahs. And stay away from the transgressions. It's only his evil inclination that's pressing him. And therefore, when he's beaten until his evil inclination is weakened and he consents to the divorce, he's considered to have performed the divorce willfully. This is like a wow from Rambam to say such a thing. The Rebbe has a takeaway at the end that when we go out and reach out to another year, obviously we shouldn't force people to do mitzvahs. However, there's a form of coercion. I'll ask a guy to lay to fill him. If you hang around my shul, and I and I sort of tell them to do it. They don't want to disappoint me. Maybe they're not in the mood. So why am I doing it? And the answer is partially this Rambam because I know that really they want to. A yid wants to do the mitzvahs. That's the Torah's principle, and therefore, I'm nudging them do it. And when they do it, they're not going against their better will. They're doing they're actually what they really want. The proof is that often that often they turn around and say, wow, thank you, that felt so good. 